So today is a big day for Girlboss Radio. In a few minutes, we're going to be joined by my friend SJ. I mean, Sarah Jessica Parker, a.k.a. Carrie Bradshaw, a.k.a. Francis on the new HBO series Divorce. But right now, sitting next to me is Jericho Mandiber, editorial director at girlboss.com. And I'm happy to report that we're both a bit smarter this week than we were last week, thanks in part to our partners at Skillshare. So what is Skillshare, you ask? I know you're asking. Uh, Skillshare is an online learning platform that offers you classes in just about anything you can think of. Jericho, how can I take better pictures? Skillshare. How can I make a better presentation? You know what you should do? Just go to Skillshare. There's something for everyone at Skillshare. And you can do it from the comfort of your own home or from the beach or wherever you want. Whether it's a side hustle or a hobby, which is kind of the old word for side hustle... We were reading about that recently. Mm-hmm. Skillshare will keep you learning in 2018 and beyond. So right now, I'm really excited about a class with Soledad O'Brien called Powerful Storytelling. Uh, but there's tons of options because Skillshare offers over 18,000 classes in business marketing, entrepreneurship, technology, and more. And right now, Skillshare is offering Girl Boss Radio listeners a limited time offer of three months of Skillshare for just 99 cents. That's like pretty much free. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com slash Girlboss99. Again, go to Skillshare.com slash Girlboss99 to get three months of Skillshare for only 99 cents. Act now for this special New Year's offer and start learning today. Success. It's such a complicated idea, and yet for so long, we've all collectively subscribed to a single definition of the word, which was likely given to us by a white-haired dude somewhere in a boardroom in the 1960s. And there's nothing wrong with that definition, with the notion of climbing a corporate ladder with a singular focus. But it's time to make space for a few other definitions, for side hustles and well-being and failing forward, and for the idea that success is a wild ride, not the destination at the end of it. Join me for a journey into the lives of women who are redefining success and paving the way for others with grit and grace. I'm Sophia Amoruso, the founder and CEO of Girlboss Media, and this is Girlboss Radio. Born in a tiny town in southeastern Ohio, Sarah Jessica Parker never thought that she couldn't be all the things she wanted to be. In junior high, when her parents put everything they owned into a VW bus and packed up the family to move to New York City, her love of stage and screen blossomed. And she's been a working actor ever since. Sarah Jessica is a storyteller. She brings beautiful, complex, cerebral characters to light on stage and on screen. I just was interested, as I always am, in just stories about people and like the little stuff, the little emotional stuff that we're all experiencing quietly that most of us don't share because it's not really share it, share worthy. You know, it's like just the day to day, the minutia of life. From square pegs to sex in the city, she's been an influential voice of our generation. She's also a wife, a mother and a savvy businesswoman. And that's sort of the way I pursued business, because for me, it was like an opportunity at a whole other career, which is unusual and fortunate. Uh, It's a privileged place to be, and I wanted to be deserving of it. So the more time I spent in business, the more I discovered that I really loved it. 
She launched her fragrance line in 2005 and her eponymous shoe line, SJP, in 2014 in collaboration with Manolo Blahnik's George Malkamis. Today, we'll talk about her latest project, HBO's Divorce, a fantastic show about the life of an American family, and we'll reflect on what made Sex and the City such a lasting phenomenon. I think the writing on Sex and the City was so just beautiful, so exquisite, so irreverent, so subversive, so funny, so threatening that I my guess is that the stories, the journey, the emotional journey of these women and their friendships and the intimate nature of their conversations and the sort of thesis at the end of each episode which is basically like it's a column, right? That must still have some place in women's lives. And of course, we'll ask her about her involvement with the Times Up movement and why it's more than just a fleeting hashtag. But first, hi Jericho. Hi. Are you excited about Sarah Jessica Parker? I'm so excited. So we're just going to keep this Sarah Jessica Parker theme today. Just it's an SJ love fest in here. It is. And if you guys don't know about this Instagram account, if you are a fan of Sex in the City or Sarah Jessica Parker, there's this account called Every Outfit on Sex in the City. It's at every outfit on SATC, right? Uh-huh. And it's got over 400,000 followers and as the name suggests, it's literally just screen grabs of outfits from Sex in the City. <laughs> so, who's behind this? So, it was started by two friends, a writer director called Lauren Garoni and Chelsea Fairless, who was a fashion editor and she's a designer at Female Travel right now. And they basically just got together and started commentating on the outfit choices of all the Sex in the City characters and kind of psychoanalyzing their outfit choices in relation to like what was happening in the plot in a really funny, like catty, beautiful way. So they will like upload a photo of Carrie in a fishnet top with her hair straightened and caption it something like Carrie reminding us that your shitty love life can always be obscured by a visible bra and a flat iron. So basically turning like every moment in Sex and the City into some like universally relatable. Yes. Yeah. So if you're a fan of the show and you've watched it like five times all the way through, you'll still get something new out of it just because of the way that they describe like the outfit choices that the costume designer Patricia Field made that kind of sent little like subtle messages and cues to the audience about those characters. Yeah. So Chelsea's queer and obviously Patricia Fields, the famous costume designer, is as well. And so the account is really popular in like the LGBTIQ community because it calls out these kind of queer signifiers and visual themes in the show and how the show was kind of problematic and it kind of, you know, dates badly by 2018 standards, mm -hmm. but it's still so amazing and universal in all these other ways. So they always say, you know, Miranda's a closet lesbian. Um, oh, and they invented the hashtag woke Charlotte, which has been written about a lot, where they yeah. rewrite Charlotte's lines to make her seem really progressive. Oh, so they rewrote her lines. Yeah. Okay, because so I was looking at it and I was like, grabs. wow, this is really progressive. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I thought that was actually the writing on this show because I haven't seen every episode. Mm -hmm. So it's mm. almost like Charlotte is like the antithesis of that. Like she has, she says kind of progressive things, but it's in a surprising way on the show because mm -hmm. it's like her character is supposed to be the opposite of that, like super traditional and romantic. So they basically like superimpose a new... Um, subtitles, so it looks like Charlotte's saying these really amazing things. So yeah, it just gives like a whole new life to the show, and it's so, so fun. And it's still self-care month. We're wrapping it up, but there's so much to see 
on girlboss.com. We've got a story on the illustrated history of self-care and the term and an essay on the relationship with self-care and like mainstream marketing and all that stuff. There's like a lot of great conversations going on on the site right now. Always great conversations at girlboss.com. And remember, tickets are on sale for the next Girlboss Rally. It's coming to LA on April 28th. Early nerd registration has sold out, but you can still get your general admission or VIP registration at girlbossrally.com. And we'll have more information for you, including announcements of some of our amazing speakers, because it's going to be good in the coming weeks. So stay tuned. And if you haven't subscribed to our newsletter uh, at girlboss.com. Now, here's Sarah Jessica Parker, actress, producer, advocate for the arts, champion for women, lover of shoes, and to us, we're calling her SJ. So, SJ, I want to hear about your childhood. You grew up in Ohio? I was born in Ohio. I was born in a a very small town in southeastern Ohio called Nelsonville, which is just in the foothills, basically, of Appalachia. And that was because that was the nearest hospital to Athens, Ohio, where my parents were in university. And when I was about five years old, we moved to Cincinnati, Ohio, and I lived there until I was 11. And then when I was 11 years old, we moved to New York City, and I've lived in New York City ever since. And I heard your family packed up a VW and moved to New York but, like, your place wasn't ready, and you guys, like, moved somewhere else. Like, it sounds like such a, like, such a 70s, like, family kind of camp movie or something. Was it like that? We could pretend. We could make it into that. Um, I mean, it, there was something kind of, well, it felt very much, it felt like a great adventure. We all, we, I think we all wanted to move to New York. We did really, truly put everything that we could own and fit into a Volkswagen bus. My mother was pregnant with the, let's see, my, with the seventh baby of eight. And she couldn't travel like that. So she stayed in Cincinnati, actually, to sort of close down that house. And we did come to New York City. And we were among the first families moving to Roosevelt Island, which I don't know if your (laughs) listeners are familiar, but it's an island in the middle of the East River which has a very interesting, colorful history. Um, And the city of New York basically had sort of taken over and created housing, affordable housing there. So that was the way that we could afford to move to New York. And when we arrived in New York City, just probably January 2nd, I think, of 1977, our apartment wasn't ready. So we, I think my father just found, um, he found a couple of hotel rooms at a Holiday Inn in Yonkers. <laughs> and we lived we lived there for a while. And um, eventually he found in the New York Times real estate section a house that we could afford to rent in Dobbs Ferry, New York, which is just up to Hudson. I mean, it was a very exciting time, like I said, for most of us, I think, who wanted very much to be New Yorkers and live in New York and have all of that, that experience, what we imagined. But I think it was probably much more of a trial for my parents and um, – and not every sibling had a sort of dream. Our dreams were, were vastly different. But I think ultimately we're all really pleased that my parents were willing to kind of be so risky and, and make such a bold move without little or no, you know, there's like no support really for it. 
Yeah, that's a lot to move. I mean, to live in New York with any children, I can imagine, is challenging. Or <laughs> yeah. to live anywhere with any children is challenging. But eight of them. Did you live with all of your siblings? Yeah, um, there were six at the time. And my mom, like I said, was pregnant with my soon-to-be-born sister who was who's called Allegra. She was born at Yonkers Hospital. And... Yeah, we all live together. We're all from the same mother. Um, We have two different fathers. I'm the youngest of the first set of biological parents, and then my mother remarried, and she's still married to my stepfather. So we're all we were all raised together, lived together. You know, shared one bathroom, shared bedrooms, all of that—the good, the bad, the um, brutal. (laughs) You, I mean, you started acting really early. How old were you when you started working in theater? And was that something that you were interested in? Did your parents push you in that direction? How, at that age, did you get involved in in theater? There was an unusually fortunate sort of turn of events that we benefited from, which is that um, at the time, our local NBC affiliate in Cincinnati was a station, I think the call letters were like, um, it was WLW. And um, there was a gentleman there who was making what were NBC's versions of – do you know after-school specials or are you too young? Uh, yeah. No, I do. Okay. <laughs> so NBC's version of, of after-school specials were these programs called Young People's Specials, and they were on like you know twice a year maybe. And the gentleman who made them was writing and directing them, shooting them in Cincinnati, Ohio, and of all crazy things. And there was an ad in the paper when I was eight – that they were doing um, an adaptation of The Little Match Girl, which is a Hans Christian Andersen, very tragic story. And I saw it, and uh, my mom let my sister and I, I have no idea why, because we'd never been act. I mean, we weren't actors, but we marched ourselves down to our local NBC station in downtown Cincinnati, and we stood in a long line of like 500 little girls. And then I was cast in the role, and... I did it. I shot it over the course of, I think, five business days. (laughs) It was an amazing experience. Like it was, you know, I mean, it was the portal to like life change. And I think primarily I just really loved the idea of being somebody else. I was perfectly happy in my own life. But this escape to this other story just was like completely – it was – really seductive. And I got, they paid me, you know, like $500 and I would get out in time to get to my ballet classes. And then they would give me $5 to get something to eat. Mm-hmm. And $5 to me, it was like somebody handing me like gold bullion, you know, like I'd never handled $5 before. And I just, the whole experience, you know, being paid to have this kind of extraordinary for me, this singular experience really just change my life. And at the same time, my brother was performing locally. Um, we had a lot of, at the time, and, and Cincinnati is actually very a place of um, great culture. There's a really well-known theater there, an equity theater. We have a you know beautiful ballet company. At the time, there was this very important symphony and this great conductor that was you know known all over the world. So it was a place of great culture. It's a university town, so that happens a lot in places like that. And then Tom Robertson, that same writer-director, wrote another one when I was 11, and my brother and I (laughs) played siblings, and it was called Nightmare. 
the immigration of Joachim and Rachel. Um, <laughs> and it was about two children escaping from the Warsaw Ghetto, shot in Cincinnati, Ohio. And um, I don't know, I just kept having these experiences. So when we moved to New York, by the time we moved to New York, I had seen another ad in a paper for a play that was about to be produced on Broadway, and they were looking for two children, and we were coming to New York to see my dad, my real dad. I mean, all these sort of things, sort of this confluence of things kind of came together, and we ended up, I ended up being cast in that on Broadway and traveling to London to rehearse, and then we went back to Cincinnati, and and then it was after that that our family moved to New York. Was your career part of the reason that your family moved to New York, or was it like... You know, was it like, I mean, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing, but that's, <laughs> yeah. that's the place where you do um, that. Was that yeah. an influence? Because that's a, that's, a, that's a huge deal for your parents to get up and do that. Yeah, I think, I mean, in part they did. My father also, my stepfather <clears throat> with whom we were living was a truck driver. He was a semi. He drove, um, you know, like 18-wheelers. He drove like massive trucks, grain mm-hmm. trucks across the country. And he had ambitions to start a trucking company that would do the transportation for uh, bus and truck companies. So he felt that there were opportunities for him in New York to actually take more control of his professional life. And he had more opportunities because he was familiar with the theater and um, had worked in our local theater. So he felt, well, we could move to New York and I could pursue this professional work and maybe make more money for to support my family. In the meantime, my children can pursue these careers in, in, in the arts and in the theater. And so, yes, it was a sacrifice from my parents, but I think that there was, they thought there was perhaps an upside. Cool. Did you have any other early jobs? Like, have you, like, worked in a restaurant or, like, have you been an actor, like, through and through? I've been an actor through and through. I, in high school, I was, um, I babysat. I don't think that really counts, but I did babysit in high school to make money. And I did a lot of that. I also was a babysitter because, you know, I wasn't a paid one because I have so many younger brothers and sisters. But I did set up a small business, a babysitting business with my best friend Molly in high school. And we had sort of figured out an interesting um, business model that was, you know, it was pretty lucrative. But I never worked. I never had any of the traditional jobs one usually has after 18 to pr- support myself. And that didn't mean that I was always supporting myself. I guess meaning that there were times that I was running out of money as an actor, and so I would call my agent and said, you know, like, remember those things I didn't want to do? (laughs) I have to do them now. (laughs) Meaning, you know, television programs that I – it wasn't my dream. You know, a lot of jobs I did, a lot of jobs that I've done in order to support myself to pay my rent and, you know, my Con Ed bill and eat – Yeah, I think that's an interesting thing just for our listeners because, you know, when you go out into the world and you're like in your early 20s, you know, and you maybe even you're so lucky to have a talent like, you know, very few of us get to just do kind of whatever we want and kind of cherry pick the, the job that we do. And when you start a business, which is totally different from acting. You kind of have to do everything and you have to do the stuff that's unfun and you can only really like lead people to do those things until you've done them. Otherwise, you're not going to have any credibility. You won't be able to solve problems with them or for them. Yeah. So I think like in some ways, yeah, you earn the jobs that you want by doing 
the jobs that you need to do. Yeah, I think it's really important. I'm so glad you brought that up because I think it's kind of necessary. And sometimes I'm sorry for those who kind of can leapfrog over the really unpleasant part of, of achieving something that you want. And, you know, these triumphs that we have, like, they don't have to be public. You know, I think successes can be, you know, defined in all sorts of ways. But I think I am so grateful for all of the jobs that I didn't want to do that I had to do. Um, I'm, I'm grateful that there were times that I was concerned and worked that much harder and was worried, sincerely worried about paying bills and having to really make choices, you know, what does it mean to give up on a dream? And, and what do you learn from doing the things that, that aren't pleasant, that don't make you feel proud? And I'm not talking about making unsafe choices or things where you are feeling in, you know, unsafe. I'm not talking about that, thankfully. But I think you're absolutely right. I think, you know, whether you're pursuing a life in, you know, business or creatively, the more time you spend doing the least glamorous, the, the not public face of it is where you, I think, where you learn all the details that are the most important part. It's where you develop coping ne- mechanisms and it's, you know, it's the atom splitting, which is where you really learn your discipline. You don't build character getting what you want. <laughs> like No, and I think it's a burden to just get what you want. I think it doesn't allow you... Also, you just don't cultivate empathy or curiosity. Missing out on on making it, on just getting by, like there is something so, I don't know, it's a really, uh, it's an enviable place to be. In 2005, Sarah added beauty entrepreneur to her list of accomplishments. Since then, her fragrance brand has continued to grow. I asked Sarah to talk about why she started with fragrance. When I started doing Sex in the City, the television series, Darren Starr, when he initially offered me the part, he said, you know, and you can be a producer on the show. And I said, I, you know, I don't know. I, I've never produced television. I hadn't, I'd worked a lot in television, you know, as a journeyman. And, you know, we all pay attention to who's producing and we all have a lot of strong feelings about those people. I hadn't been observing, like, you know, shadowing. And he said, just pay attention. Just, you know, I'm giving you this opportunity. And of course, anybody would be foolish to say no. And I was thrilled. And so I started just listening and learning and trying to surround myself, you know, or just be among the people that I thought were making really good, smart choices and seemed to really understand how to um, handle people and business and numbers and studios. And I ended up just loving it. And um, it became, you know, an enormously important part of that experience for me. And at at the point in which I was thinking about a fragrance, which I had thought of for many, many years, I just once again found a partner that I, that had a long history and in her, you know, in her category in fragrance and beauty and was well admired in her industry. And I just wanted to be around her. So I thought, uh, this will be this partnership will be more fruitful than just launching a fragrance, but rather, I'm going to learn from somebody who is held in very high esteem in her business, and that's sort of the way I pursued business because for me, it was like an opportunity at a whole other career, which is unusual and fortunate. Uh, it's a privileged place to be, and I wanted to be deserving of it. So, 
the more time I spent in business, the more I discovered that I really loved it. Sarah Jessica has always been working, roll after roll, from square pegs to footloose to L.A. story, honeymoon in Vegas, Hocus Pocus, Ed Wood, First Wives Club. It's remarkable how many amazing roles she's played. But perhaps none more iconic than Sex in the City. I wanted to take a minute to talk to Sarah Jessica about why she thought the show was such a phenomenon. I think eventually we understood that people were had strong feelings about it and not all positive. The negative feelings were made very clear as, as well. But we definitely understood at a certain point that it was connecting with people and that, that I would recognize like little things eventually, you know, walking down the street, I st- you know, even seeing groups of four women sitting at a table outside in New York. I recognized that that was something that I hadn't actually seen before, that there was like little sort of touchstones, visual and kind of in the city that I would see, you know, you're so in the day-to-day of the work and my work had become pretty um, demanding that I wasn't, and I guess I didn't want to think too much about any outside chatter or the the peripheral stuff because it just would intrude too much on like how we were functioning maybe. Yeah. How have you managed, just speaking of tuning the outside world out, which is something that I've unfortunately had to cultivate a certain amount of, even in my, like, small kind of following. Mm -hmm. And it's hard. Like, it's really hard when the world is telling you who you are or who you think they think you are (laughs) or what you resemble or symbolize as a result (laughs) of what you've done, even if you aren't, like, didn't even, like, appoint yourself to that. Like, (laughs) it's just, like, the world crowdsources some, like, version of you that they think you are or should be. And in some ways, that's great because if you listen, there's opportunities in there. Like, wow, I could go in this direction in my career. Wow, people liked Girlboss. Why? Like, what what can I build as a result of it? But also, there's things that come with it that are really, like, unsavory. And if you pay too much attention, it will paralyze you into, like, oh, my God, you know, as you think about your next moves. Like, you know, I'm, you know, I found myself almost plotting them as if I'm a master publicist like Ina Tresiokas. I'm not. (laughs) I'm not. But yeah, she's lovely. I love her. And Ina's the woman who put this to to this us together. Just to clarify for our listeners. But how how do you deal with that? And have there been low moments where the world is saying one thing about you, but you're like, that's not true. I'm gonna go over here and just not pay attention. Yeah, it it's you know, happened for a long time and there tends to be like kind of like flu season. It's like it tends to like spike and then goes away. And I will say only that I don't think I'm that much better at it dealing with it than than I've ever been. I don't think I don't feel like I, oh, I didn't get the thick skin they tell me they told me I'd get or, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I never developed like the cynicism that you're supposed to that's like you acquire over time when you've been beaten up and people have said untrue things about you. And even lately, you know, uh, with all the endless talk about Sex and the City you know, not happening, the third movie, and, you know, I know the truth of what happened, and and I let people define it because, you know, you don't want to, like, even get involved in it because you just end up in the weeds. It's like a pointless, like, to attempt to try to write the, you know, correct the record, which is always my instinct. I'm like, Ina, but that's not true, and... When will I, you know, you just, I think you need, 
you need people who love you and care about you to remind you to be circumspect and like kind of try to step back and be philosophical. But I think it's perfectly okay to have those things still hurt your feelings. Like I think, or, or to feel outraged by it because it's a personal experience. And, you know, I'm sure you choose to live your life in a way that makes you proud and you conduct yourself in a way that you think is professional and you treat people well and you try to make good choices or interesting choices or you make challenging choices. And when someone tells you why or what that experience was and it has no, like it doesn't at all reflect yours, mm-hmm. it's so frustrating. But on the other hand, <laughs> there are so many worse things that people are afflicted with. Like if this is my cross to bear, right? If this, I know, right? If this like, is boo, it, boo hoo. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. Yeah. Then I have to find a way to just kind of integrate that, and you know, there are right now, obviously, in our country, there are like really big, important conversations going on, mm-hmm. and my, you know, my offense at something is not; it just doesn't stack up. Yeah. Perspective will get you through so much, right? You know, just saying like, okay, this thing happened to me. But if you're in a position, which I think most of our listeners probably are, to look around your life and say, but I'm fine. Like, I'm actually fine in the grand scheme of, you know, what's happening on this planet. Like, you know, it can get you through a lot. Yeah. And I don't think I'm either one of us are, you know, in any way advocating just letting things go that are not okay in your lives. But you can, most people can kind of draw the line between what is important and what isn't. And Mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And when you're young, I think it can sometimes things can seem so much more amplified than once it's it's happened a few times. And you can always kind (laughs) of cast yourself into the future where you're going to be like scoffing, like laughing, making (laughs) jokes about that insane crisis that you had, you know, a year ago. Yeah. With the Instagram account Every Outfit on SATC and the hashtag Woke Charlotte, the show still remains part of pop culture in 2018. I think that's really interesting, and I think that actually speaks more to anything, like to the writing then, because the greatest, the hardest thing to do, I think, with any any art form that lives like on film, right, so cinema or television, whatever now, or on your computer— and it, when there's a relationship with fashion, it's, it's very hard to not have it be end up being like a period piece, you know, mm-hmm. because it looks dated. The, the fashion tells you, oh, that was this year, that decade. But I think the writing on Sex and the City was so mm-hmm. just beautiful, so exquisite, so irreverent, so subversive, so funny, so threatening. My guess is that this the stories, the the journey, the emotional journey of these women and their friendships and the intimate nature of their conversations and the sort of thesis at the end of each episode, which is basically like it's a column, right? That must still have some place in women's lives, I guess. Mm-hmm. Is my is my guess is that's the that would be the thread that pulls it into this century, like this decade, right? You know, because yeah. otherwise you would see it, it would almost be like an amber because of the cost, you know, because of the fashion in a way. So we're really only halfway through this conversation with SJ, but there is so much more to come. Now, since we're talking about fashion, let's talk a little bit about Stitch Fix. 
Stitch Fix. Oh my gosh. The story I wish I had when I started a fashion company. Uh, they just IPO'd. They like do over a billion dollars in revenue. I just don't even know how you do that. I tried to get like halfway there. Their success is really just an indication of how amazing their product and service is. Like I got a dress in the mail and it just, it feels like a really expensive dress. And they just make it so easy, right? You you fill out your style profile and they send you clothes, shoes and accessories picked just for you, your size, your lifestyle, your budget. And of course, things that you'll like and I love the style profile it's my favorite part sometimes I just go back and edit it you just like to click around don't you so (laughs) and sending stuff back that you don't like in the event that you don't like something is super easy stitch fix covers shipping both ways for returns and exchanges too and there's no subscription required you can get your fix monthly quarterly or whenever you feel like it so Get started now at stitchfix.com slash girlboss. And you'll also get 25% off when you keep all five items in your box. That's stitchfix.com slash girlboss to try Stitch Fix today. S-T-I-T-C-H-F-I-X dot com slash girlboss.